title of the message today is the, the mystery of, I should have put that in big bold letters, that little word of, the mystery of Babylon revealed. This is chapter 17 and chapter 18. Really more of these verses that we're beginning to study this week are were or are one of the, the main reasons why I wanted to study uh, with you all the book of Revelation, because there is a lot, a lot, a whole lot <laughs> of misunderstanding about these particular verses and this idea of this woman riding on the beast who has the name Babylon. Now, we have talked about this several times. I've hinted at it, and the reason why we emphasize, I have been emphasizing that her name is Babylon, and Babylon is a literal place. It's on a map. We can find it. We could go there today. Uh, and according to the scriptures, Babylon has a future in the world uh, because of the confusion that people introduce by teaching and thinking that the, when the Word of God says Babylon, it actually means something else. And that primarily comes from this passage, or it has its roots in this passage in a misinterpretation of what the words actually say on the page. So this is the mystery of Babylon. You hear a lot of talk of, quote, mystery Babylon, even among people that we uh, otherwise may like, and we'll name some names later for you so you can uh, watch out for that. But there's one very prominent among dispensationalists who makes a big deal about Mystery Babylon. And I'm here to tell you today that there, it's, not, it's not a mystery like this is Agatha Christie show, and we need to figure this out. If we keep a consistent definition of the term mystery from the Greek, we know that, well, there is no mystery using the English term mystery. Mystery in Greek is a revealing of the truth. So every time we see the word mystery, we need to rejoice and say, oh, good, the Lord is about to reveal something to me here. This isn't something I have to figure out and go to years of school to be a, a detective for the police. No, he's telling us the truth, and it's no different here in this idea of Babylon. Babylon is not a mystery uh, in terms of English. It is a revealing of truth. Babylon is Babylon. We'll just get that right out of right out of the way. And uh, a proper understanding of these chapters, chapters 17 and 18 are all one unit, uh, by the way. It's not two different topics that are being discussed in these two chapters. It's all one topic, and the topic is Babylon and its future in God's plan. So when we understand these verses and this entire passage properly, it helps us to understand what's actually going on in the world and how God's kingdom is going to come to this earth, how the events leading up to it that are going to take place. That's what is being revealed here. 
And you understand, right, that the coming of God's kingdom to the earth is actually what the Bible is all about. <laughs> the Bible begins by telling us that God created the world, God created humans directly, speaking us into existence so that we could live with him and enjoy him forever, living in his presence. But humans messed that up by sinning, by going uh, and living in a way that's contrary to God and the perfection that is a must to be in his presence. And so the story of the Bible is how God is fixing that problem for us. We don't fix it ourselves. Uh, we are not saving the planet through uh, green legislation and through the solar panels that are that we're now covering ground to grow food. No, instead we're going to uh, harness the sun and save the planet somehow. Not sure how that's going to work. No, God is the one who is solving this problem for us, and that's what the Bible reveals to us. And the book of Revelation gets right down to the final events that will take place before this kingdom is on the earth, how this satanic, the satanic world forces that are becoming so obvious with every passing day, how that is going to be eradicated and how we're going to live in a world that is uh, under the stewardship of God. That's what Revelation reveals to us. And these chapters show us the demise of that system, essentially, or one of the steps in the process of the demise of that satanic system that has an absolute grip on this world. Uh, that is also shown in Daniel chapter 2, if you'll remember, that Nebuchadnezzar, a Babylonian king, has a dream of a giant statue that has four different, it's a statue of a man, but it's made up of four different materials. Uh, mainly showing how there are going to be four great kingdoms in the world. Babylon, Media, Persia, uh, the Greeks, and then the, the fourth beast being this Roman Empire. But then the feet, well, the feet of that statue, they're a little bit different than just that fourth beast. They're made up of iron and clay. And then a giant stone comes in this dream of Nebuchadnezzar and hits the statue on the feet and the entire thing falls to pieces. The utter demise of this satanic system that runs the world, essentially, is what Daniel dreamed about. And then this rock becomes a giant mountain that fills the whole earth, symbolic of God's kingdom. We're seeing another step in that process here, getting more details about that stone coming and hitting those feet of iron and clay. How is that, how was that come about in more detail? Well, that's uh, Revelation 17 and 18, gives us some more detail. And if you were paying any attention at all in the scripture reading, we've read just the first 13 verses, you understand that this is rather complex. There's a lot of symbology, a lot of symbolic language, a lot of details. 
and the, these details, it doesn't just go in one order, you know, one verse and then the next, and we'll just check these off. Now, these topics are covered in different places throughout this passage. So we'll, it won't be, at least today, we won't, part of anyway, what we look at, we'll get an overview first. How about that? We'll put it that way. We'll get an overview and then we'll go back and study it uh, more in some detail. So it's important for us to remember this is where we are in uh, the book of Revelation, studying the tribulation period. That's the majority of the book, chapters 6 through 19, is uh, covers the tribulation period. Uh, so the book in large measure is about that tribulation period. Uh, moving forward, and, and even in our in the entirety of our study, it's important to realize that Revelation isn't just a standalone book of the Bible. That's one way that people get into a lot of trouble in uh, misinterpreting Revelation, treating it as if it's just a standalone book and it has all the information for us. And if we just understand Revelation, well, then we'll know everything that's going to happen in the future. That, that's not a good way to approach the book. Revelation, we, if you'll remember, there's a great blessing for understanding this book. And that is because, well, you have to understand the rest of the Bible to properly understand Revelation. It is, it's the conclusion of the book, if you will. It's like going to the, the last chapter of War and Peace, uh, a giant novel about uh, Napoleon invading Russia and all of these things. And it, well, if you just understand the last chapter, well, you, you get the whole rest of it. And War and Peace is like this thick. So no, that's not how it works. You got to understand the whole thing to understand the conclusion. Well, Revelation is a book showing how the, the events that lead to God fulfilling his promises to the nation of Israel. We understand that too, right? That, that God hasn't fulfilled all of his promises to the nation of Israel. Some of those are still in the future. Like, for example, the nation of Israel having all of the land from the Nile River to the Euphrates River. That's all Israel, according to Genesis 15. Anyway, they've never controlled all of that. They've never been kind of the superpower of the world, uh, like God promises that they will be in the Old Testament. And so the book of Revelation shows how God will fulfill these unconditional covenants that he made to the nation of Israel, promising to make that, give them a land, uh, have a ruler who will rule over them, Jesus Christ, having people who uh, are part of the new covenant, have their sins forgiven, who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, like we read about in Jeremiah 31. All of those covenants will be fulfilled when these events end, when they have been completed. And so, as we are uh, studying this passage, of course, it's part of these bold judgments. Now, 
there is there's some discrepancy about what we're reading in Revelation 17 and 18 exactly where where it takes place. Some good scholars think that when we get to Revelation 17, we're going all the way back to the midpoint of the tribulation, maybe even before then. The, these events that we're studying, others see it more towards the end, and we'll talk about that as we get there. But uh, it's important for us to understand there are essentially three very critical events in history that will take place that we know according to consistent literal interpretation of the Bible with regard to the tribulation period. Seven-year period, uh, seven years because Daniel chapter 9 tells us it's seven years and in other other places, but primarily there. Uh, One event that will take place before that begins is the rapture of the church. Again, There's no other conclusion using a consistent, literal interpretation of the Bible. The only consistent, literal conclusion, or the only conclusion you come to when interpreting the Bible consistently, literally, is that the rapture is a separate event from the second coming, and it takes place before the tribulation begins, because the tribulation period has nothing, nothing, nothing to do with the church. It has to do with the earth dwellers that we've uh, learned about. It has to do with the nation of Israel. Nothing to do with the church. That's why the word church appears nowhere in chapters 4 to 19. Not a single time. Particularly chapters 6 through 19, there is absolutely no mention uh, of the word ecclesia or church. That's because the rapture has happened and the church is in heaven with the Lord before the first seal. That's another important event. The first seal is what begins the tribulation, not the election of Joe Biden or Donald Trump. That didn't start the tribulation. Uh, COVID didn't start the tribulation. No, the first seal, a pseudo peace begins the tribulation. And those seal judgments happen. They lead into the trumpet judgments. The next event that we know for sure, I've put the the seals and trumpets in the first half, but the event that we know for 100% undeniable truth of God's word, the midpoint of the seven-year period is when the Antichrist, the false prophet, sets up an image of the Antichrist in a literal temple in Jerusalem for the world to worship him. And then the bold judgments are poured out upon the world. And then at the end of the bold judgments, Christ comes again to the earth, ending this seven-year tribulation period and beginning the messianic kingdom. So three events, well, we'll call it four events that we know for sure. The rapture takes place. The first seal begins the tribulation period. They move sequentially to the trumpets and bulls. At the midpoint of the tribulation, event number three, we know for sure, is the setting up of the abomination of desolation. And the fourth event we know for sure that ends the tribulation is Christ coming again. 
And so we've gone through this uh, slide, but we're moving right along. We're all the way down here to chapter 17 now that we finished chapter 16 with the bold judgments last time, and we moved into the destruction of Babylon, and that is described in chapter 17 and 18. And here's a, a further breakdown uh, of the destruction of Babylon that's in chapter 17 and 18. And again, probably one of the things to first and foremost to keep in mind is as we move through this, that 17 and 18 are all one unit. That chapter division can sometimes get in our way of, of understanding. We don't really switch gears. This is something that you'll, you see a lot in commentaries and hear of discussions. Uh, chapter 17 is all about false religion, and chapter 18 is all about uh, the economic system that will be going on in the world in the end times and its destruction. Mm, not quite, not, not totally. Chapters 17 and 18 are about the destruction of Babylon, and we'll just get it right out of the way, right in the beginning. The woman riding on the beast is not false religion. So we can kind of, uh, it's not exclusively false religion. So we can just get that right out on the, on the table to begin with. The woman riding on the beast is a city. I'm not making this up. Revelation 17, 18. You might hear this again a few times. Revelation 17, 18. Right from the Bible. The woman whom you saw is the great city. So the woman isn't the Catholic Church. The woman isn't false religion. The woman isn't anything other than the great city which reigns over the king's of the earth. And we know her name is Babylon. Her name is Babylon, Re uh, Revelation 17, 5. So the, so the woman riding on the beast is a city, and that city is Babylon. We can just keep that in mind. If, we, if you get nothing else out of this, <laughs> keep that in mind. That Well, there's a couple things. There's no mystery. It's not mystery Babylon is not her name. Her name is Babylon the Great, and it is a city. She is a city, the city of Babylon. And we'll get into more details with that. But we learned some things about this city or this woman. She is immoral. Uh, she has a mode of transportation. There's something that's carrying her along to prominence and her name is Babylon, not Mystery Babylon. Her name is Babylon. And then we see that her mode of transportation is this beast, this satanic kingdom, this coming satanic kingdom that's already kind of in this world. Satan is the prince and power of this world. He is, we are moving headlong into what is described here in Revelation. It's already here. It's already here and growing, 
and will become more prominent as time goes on. We learn some details about this coming kingdom. And then we see the destruction of this woman in verses 14 through 18. This might come as a surprise uh, to us as we move through this, but this city is destroyed at some point during this tribulation period. Now, that's what I was referring to before. Some think that this actually, the city of Babylon uh, will be destroyed at the midpoint of the tribulation as there is a religious component to this city. We don't, it's not, uh, I'm not bursting all of the bubble. There is some false religion that is incorporated into this city. But we have already seen that, well, at the midpoint of the tribulation, the false prophet directs the entire world's uh, religious devotion to the Antichrist. And some will put these two together, that Babylon will be destroyed. The false religion that is currently being perpetuated will be destroyed and everything, the mask will come off completely. The fact that Satan is behind all of this, and it will be direct worship of Satan and the Antichrist, and Babylon will be destroyed. Now, others will say this happens later in the tribulation, and that's all. Uh, We'll talk about that when we get there. Uh, We'll see that there's a a futile war, futile war, that, that the world is going to wage against God and against Christ there in verses 14 through 18. And guess what? Uh, Jesus is going to be <laughs> victorious in the end. But the 10 kings are actually, when they destroy Babylon, they're doing God's bidding. And we'll get into, we'll get into that when we, we get there. And there's a, this great warning that we see in chapter 18 that goes along with the destruction of the harlot or the destruction of Babylon. There's this great warning to uh, believers at the time to extricate yourself from Babylon, remove yourself from Babylon because it's going to be destroyed. And then in verses 9 through 24 of chapter 18, we have this great lament over the destruction of Babylon, the destruction of the harlot who is Babylon. And personally, I can't wait to get into the details of this. So let's do just that as we make our way into this passage, keeping in mind that these are literal places that are being described, Jerusalem, the Euphrates River, and Babylon, literal (laughs) geographic places that are on this earth today But Jerusalem is, of course, a prominent place. Babylon, not so much now, but, you know, we really shouldn't uh, consider that to be a barrier to God accomplishing his word. Because after all, uh, Jerusalem didn't become uh, prominent for the nation of Israel again, at least on the world stage, until 1948, uh, when Israel became a nation again on the world stage. And well, Jerusalem wasn't even recognized as the capital by most nations until, oh, I don't know, this guy, Donald Trump came along and said, well, we're moving our embassy to Jerusalem. 
The United States will now recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. And that was like in 2017 or 16. He said it on the campaign trail that he was going to do it, and he did it. Uh, so all that to say, you know, during the time of, of John Calvin and Martin Luther and uh, even, uh, boy, you know, Schofield and Chafer and these kinds of people, uh, Israel wasn't a nation, but yet they still, at least Chafer and Schofield said, well, Israel will be in the future. And uh, we saw it happen in 1948. That's old news. All that to say, uh, it's not that big of a deal that Babylon isn't a prominent city today. Literally six months from now, it could be. If somebody decided to do it, who had the means to do it, they could build an enormous prominent city in Babylon and it could happen. It's a literal place. There's no, there's really no reason for us to think that Babylon means anything other than Babylon when we read it. And hopefully as we move through some of the details, you will agree after uh, we get through some of this. Uh, so the mystery of Babylon revealed today, we'll see the harlot introduced, we'll see the impetus or the, the mode by which she is moving forward and the imprint that is upon her forehead as we move through this. So we begin with the introduction. Notice again, Revelation 17, verses 1 through 2. It says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. Now, I don't know about you, uh, but when even thinking of the book of Revelation, one of the things that comes to my mind first off when I hear Revelation is this, the picture of this of a harlot, this woman riding on this beast. It just immediately, that's one of the things that I think of this chapter. Now, believe it or not, the, uh, the whole book of Revelation hasn't been about this harlot riding on the beast. In fact, this is where it's first getting mentioned. This is why we see uh, John wondering about this greatly in verse 6. What do you mean you're wondering about this greatly? This is what the whole book's about, right? Well, not really. It's just being introduced here, and it's being introduced to John. And the angel says, why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery. So the angel is telling us the mystery. We don't have to go to some guy on YouTube to tell us what the mystery is. The angel already did 2,000 years ago. So there, uh, there isn't anything for us to figure out. It's been revealed to us. Uh, so let's just move on. The introduction. Notice that it's one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls. So that is telling us the bowl judgments we read about in chapter 16 
we need to be reminded that the book of Revelation is not strictly chronological. In large part, overall, it is chronological, but there are breaks in the description of events that are taking place. And in these breaks, we go back and look at some things that have happened and we move forward and look at some things that have happened. I'm going to call this the post-game show. Remember, we it's hockey season, so now we can get into it. It wasn't when we started. But hockey, three periods with the intermission between the first and second period and the second and third period. And now we have the post-game show here in chapters 17 and really all the way to chapter 20 and verse 4 is kind of this uh, break in the narrative where we're getting more information about events that happen right at the very end. And then when we get to uh, Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4, that's when the narrative moves forward again and we see the people coming to life and ruling and reigning with Christ for a thousand years. Between 17 and 20, verse 3, we're just, we're looking at events and then we have to kind of put them, put them into place. If you remember, Revelation chapter 7 was our first intermission. Revelation 10 through 15 was a longer intermission, looking at events in uh, primarily covering these events that happened in the first half of the tribulation looking forward a little bit to events that will take place at the end. Now we have the post-game show, if you will, where we're going to get an overview of things that have happened, some things that, uh, that we haven't gotten a tremendous amount of detail uh, about. But notice what he's going to show us, what he's showing John. It's one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and spoke with me saying, come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. He spoke with me. This is John. You don't see it in the, in the English, but in the Greek, he uses the, the word uh, emu is the, the Greek term or emu. I'm not a, I'm not a, great pronunciator of uh, Greek terms, but what I do know is that he is emphasizing the fact that this angel, by using that term instead of just the regular mu to refer to himself, that term is showing emphasis that he talked to me when this happened. This actually happened. This angel came and talked to me personally and so it gives us even more uh, reason to trust in what John is saying here to us regarding these events. And notice that the angel is going to show him the judgment of the great harlot. It says right there in verse 1, who sits on many waters. We've already been introduced. Notice that he calls her the great harlot. We've already seen this term great applied to another entity back in Revelation 16 
and 19, the second part of the verse there, Babylon, d- describing the destruction of the seventh bowl judgment. That's what is there, the destruction of Babylon. It says, Revelation 16, 19, Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. Then we come to Revelation 17, 1. The judgment of the great harlot, female term there, it's describing a woman who sits on many waters. Babylon the great is the great harlot. The harlot is a city and she is Babylon the Great. Notice that it's not a mystery Babylon the Great there in Revelation 16, 19, like some are so fond of of calling it. Mystery Babylon. No, it is just simply referred to as Babylon the Great in Revelation 16, 19, just like she is called uh, the Great Harlot there. She's not called the Mystery harlot. Mystery isn't a part of her name. She's just called, in this instance, the great harlot. And then he gives some characteristics of this woman, that she sits on many waters at the end of verse 1. Verse 2, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. So we see that she sits on many waters so we can just engage our imaginations. Oh, what does that mean? Well, oh, the city of Rome has a lot of rivers around it and there's some a bunch of lagoons and stuff. It must be describing Rome here. She must be Rome. It's got to be, right? Because that's what the waters mean. Oh, wait, let's actually look at what the Bible says before we engage our imaginations. The mystery is revealed here, being revealed. So when we jump ahead to Revelation 17 and verse 15, we can read what the waters are representative of. We don't have to make it up and come up with, oh, well, another option, New York City. Have you ever been to New York City? It's surrounded by water. Certainly, the harlot must be New York City. It's full of immorality, right? It's a terrible place or that, that is wholly immoral, but yet it has great influence over the world and it's on water. That's got to be it. No. Revelation seventeen fifteen. the angel said to me, John, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. The water, just like earlier in the description of uh, the first beast in Revelation 13, where it was uh, coming out of the ocean and we saw, oh, the oceans are representative of Gentiles, the people, the nations of the world. Same symbology here. We're not switching horses In midstream, the many waters mean the same thing that they meant in Revelation 13. They mean here in Revelation 17, in verse 1, this great harlot sits on many waters, not not literal waters, so we have to look for a coastal town. No, that is simply representative of people. She has 
influence over the whole world. That's why she's pictured riding on this beast on many waters. And she led the kings of the earth into immorality. There is some, there is some sort of connection between this satanic kingdom and the influence of this city and immorality for even the kings of the earth. And also the earth dwellers, the people on the earth are being led astray by this. Now we have a wonderful example of that right here in the United States, the city of Las Vegas is known, it's known as Sin City. That's one of its uh, uh, monikers that, that people say about it. It is a city that is known for licentiousness and immorality and these kinds of things. Uh, San Francisco, same, same kind of, uh, of idea. So there is attraction to people of power, people with money, and influence to these kinds of of places. And there's an attraction for uh, the earth dwellers. People uh, who are living an earthly life are attracted to these kinds of places because you can engage in immorality uh, there. And we see that the kings of the earth uh, did that. Revelation 18, 3, for all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Notice this is in chapter 18, describing her uh, spiritual effect or her religious effect there is in Revelation 18 also, not just 17. And the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. It's all one package that is being described here. The immorality goes right along with the economics, right along with the the false uh, religion. We see this mentioned again in Revelation 18.9, the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensual, sensuously with her will weep and lament over her destruction. Uh, the earth dwellers, the unbelievers of this time are led into immorality by the city and being uh, drunk with the wine of her Immorality, we see that described also in, uh, I don't think that's the right reference, Revelation 16.10, that isn't the right reference. Uh, but at any rate, they, the, the unbelievers are led into immorality by this city, by the harlot who is, who is riding on this beast, and they are said to be drunk with the wine of her immorality. Now, sin and its enticements have an, an intoxicating effect on people. And that's why the uses this kind of language, saying that they're drunk with the wine of her immorality. Those who are under the influence of sin... Uh, live their lives without regard to the consequences, without regard to common sense sometimes, and uh, what they otherwise may want to do, very similar to being intoxicated with 
alcohol. And you see that, you can see an obvious example of it in your children, small children, you catch them doing something that they're not supposed to be doing. What are you doing? I don't know. Why did you touch that? I didn't touch that. It's the same thing with adults. We, We act like children when we're caught in sin and doing things that have much more consequences than eating a cookie or something like that that a child does, but we fall under the same kind of uh, spell, if you will. And you see, uh, you can see examples of this everywhere. So just like drunkenness from alcohol is condemned outright by the scriptures because of the consequences of it and the, the insidious nature of it, so is sin. <laughs> So is coming under the influence of sin in your life in general. We don't uh, consume sin and come under its spell the same way that we shouldn't consume alcohol and come under its uh, spell, if you will. If If we're not participating in sin, then we don't have to rationalize our behavior uh, you don't have to make excuses and all of these things that that go along with sin and living under it. And it's important for us to remember that, you know, just like alcohol has an effect on your brain and your thinking, literally, and the, the actions that you do, so does sin. It's a battle in your mind. You have to protect your mind. That's what the armor of God is all about that we studied in Ephesians chapter 6, it's this battle against sin is largely engaged in our minds. And these uh, people in the tribulation period will come under the effect of this city and the licentiousness and sin that is involved in it. And that's what's described there in the first two verses in the introduction to the harlot. And then we move to the impetus, Revelation 17 and verse 3, he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. Notice that he was there in verse 3, carried away, and he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. This is just a reminder for us. This isn't some kind of, uh, I don't know, uh, weird experience that John is having. If you remember, he was in the spirit back in the very beginning of Revelation, uh, and that is just an indication to us that he is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He He isn't having some kind of mystic experience here that we ought to be seeking out to be good Christians and that kind of thing. This is an indication that he is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when this is happening, and and that's what the Word of God is. It is human people under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit who recorded the word of God for us. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God 
and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that we can be equipped to live for the Lord. And that's what John is reminding us of when he says here that he was carried away in the spirit. And now notice also that he was carried away, carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. Now, a lot of people are going to go to Uh, okay, well, now we need to find a city. Not only does our city have to be on water, but it also has to have a wilderness area around it because it says John was carried. Yeah, you're just getting too much (laughs) into uh, the words on the page there. That would be uh, considered too much of a wooden literal interpretation. That's not Uh, a a good method of interpretation. He's just simply describing the fact that in in this vision, he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and he's kind of uh, transported, whether it's physically or just uh, mentally to this wilderness area uh, so that his focus can be completely upon what this angel is about to show him and tell him. That's what is the significance of being carried away into the wilderness. And notice that he saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. This is the the great harlot that he just mentioned. It is a woman. And uh, the, so the term there for harlot that we see is, it's literally just that. That's what the term is. It it is a term for a female prostitute is what is being uh, described there by that term harlot. But he saw a woman. And now we, we could go off onto a rabbit trail of how women are symbolically portrayed in the Bible as being a false religion. And uh, that isn't wrong, necessarily. That is true. There are instances when that uh, is what is being described. And even in this, it is that, but that isn't the main thing that is being portrayed by the symbology of the great harlot. False religion is not the main point of describing her as a harlot. The woman is a city. Revelation seventeen eighteen. The woman you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. And who is the great city? We've already had that described to us in the seventh bowl judgment. Babylon the great was remembered before God. That is what is being described here. Uh, The fact that this woman, the city, is going to be destroyed. Now, again, there is a false religion aspect to this. We've already seen that in the false prophet and the worship of the Antichrist that will take place. It's very obvious that there is a movement in the earth to bring religions together in a false way that is contrary to the truth of who God actually is. 
Uh, women are used symbolically in the Bible at points uh, to metaphorically represent false religion. All the pagan religions have uh, false uh, female deities, if you will. And uh, the it is a good symbolic uh, method because women can... Uh, entice men from their one true wife into an adulterous relationship the same way that people are led astray into false religion away from the one true God. That's why this is a very powerful symbol. But here, there is a religious aspect to this woman, but the woman is a city. The city is Babylon. That is very important to keep in mind. The city has characteristics like every city. Uh, it has a religious component leading people into immorality away from God. It has an economic component that also leads people astray, but it is always a city. And it is that is what is being described that essentially the headquarters of this coming world empire and, and the city and its downfall is what is being described here. And notice that she is riding a scarlet beast, it says there in verse 3. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. Now, there is some uh, discrepancy about, well, is the woman controlling the beast? Is she like on a horse with reins? And she's the one directing this beast, or is it something else? I'm going to put out there that it's something other than that. There's no description of reins here, and she's controlling this beast and bringing it under control. No, the beast is the one doing the moving. She is riding on the beast passively. It's even in the language. It's in the passive voice that she is sitting upon the beast or that she is uh, riding, no, it's, it does say sitting here, that the woman is sitting passively on the beast. She is a, she's a passenger on the beast. The beast is moving forward and this city is under the satanic influence that is represented in this beast. The beast is the one moving her forward, not that she is directing the beast. The passive voice of the verb makes that very, very clear. And furthermore, we'll see as we move through this passage that the beast destroys the woman. Clearly, she is not in control of this situation. The beast destroys the woman later. And notice that this, that the, her adornments or her clothing and the things that she has on are described verse four, the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations of the unclean things of her immorality. Now, I would put this into the classification of economic, an economic description of this city. Others, you can read in good commentaries, and it's, it's kind of disappointing to me, uh, you come to verse four and they'll immediately start saying, oh, see here, this is the Pope. 
This is, this is the kind of things that the Pope has on. He wears gold rings and he's got precious stones and he wears a purple robe sometimes. This is clearly uh, the Pope in Rome that's being described here. Well, I'm not so sure that that's uh, the case. Uh, There was no such thing as a pope when John was writing this, actually. It's a description of the wealth that is in this city. Scarlet and purple, those are the two uh, colors that were reserved for the very wealthy. They're very difficult to make at that point in time. Wealthy people owned them. Uh, She's adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. This is describing the perfect coming together of religion and state. Now, that is uh, kind of one of the topics of of discussion in politics today that, oh, the conservatives, they just, they want us to live under a, a, you know, they want to take down the barrier between religion and state and uh, live under some kind of uh, theocracy, if you will. And well, that's not at all what the founding of the country was based upon. And a, a true conservative person wants no part of of that sort of thing. In fact, our nation was founded for the exact opposite reason of that, of a religious test to be in office. That's the way it was in England. And guess what? That's the way it is today in large part in the nations of the world. You have to in many respects, pass a religious test to hold office in this country, especially to be appointed to offices. How many evangelical right out there for the world to see Christians do you think have been appointed by Joe Biden and his administration? Uh, I'm going to say the number, I don't know. I'm going to say the number is pretty close to zero. How many atheists, how many uh, we'll just say, how many God-haters have been appointed to office by Joe Biden and many other presidents in our recent past? A lot, if not all of them. They are passing a religious test. We do have a coming together of state and religion in the United States of America, it just so happens that the religion is atheism and God-hating all in one package. If you, you are a member of that religion, man, you're in. You've got a leg up on the competition. And it's much the same in Europe. And guess what it's going to be like in Babylon of the future? Yes, you are going to have to pass a religious test. And at some point in time, that religious test is taking the mark of the beast and worshiping the Antichrist and Satan. You pass that religious test, come on in, you're, you're welcome. This is describing the perfect coming together of state and religion and the economic impacts that will take place because of that. It's going to create incredible wealth. 
And that's what's being described in this, the woman and her uh, clothes that she has on. They're describing characteristics of the city. There's going to be royalty and power in this city. There's going to be incredible wealth. And, oh, by the way, she has this golden cup full of the unclean abominations and the unclean things of her immorality. There is a religious aspect to this, not to downplay it, at all. And the the false religion is the worship of the Antichrist and the world system and everything that goes along with it is what is being described here in this uh, kind of introduction to the woman. Notice uh, the, the impetus or the one that's carrying her is this scarlet beast. He has blasphemous names uh, we've already been introduced to this, to the idea of scarlet. That was back in Revelation 12, the red dragon who had, incidentally, seven heads and ten horns. This future coming kingdom is a satanic kingdom. Satan in the kingdom, they're described in the same way because Satan is the kingdom, just like Jesus is the coming messianic kingdom. When he says, behold, the kingdom of God is is in your midst or uh, here, that's what he means. He is the kingdom. Jesus is representative of the kingdom, his messianic kingdom, the same way that Satan is representative of his coming kingdom. And uh, we see the first beast, Revelation 17, 3, I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having 10 horns and seven heads. The Antichrist is described in much the same way as Satan is, in much the same way as the coming kingdom is, because he will be God, the uh, Satan's representative for this kingdom. And he is full of blasphemy, Daniel 7, verses 7 and 8 that we won't take the time to look at, but he, is, uh, he also has these seven heads and ten horns. Uh, so this, the impetus for the woman is this coming satanic kingdom. There's going to be great wealth There's going to be great uh, immorality associated with it. And we also get her name that we need to uh, get into at least a little bit. And we'll talk about this more uh, next week also. Revelation 17, 5. On her forehead, a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. That is the imprint that is upon her head. This harlot has a name and it's written upon her forehead. Now, when you go to the commentaries, uh, you'll see, uh uh-oh, maybe this is a sign that we're supposed to quit. (laughs) There it goes. Uh, The uh, prostitutes in this period of time in Rome, anyway, in the Roman Empire, they would have headbands that had their names on it for, for whatever reason. So this is, this kind of fits with that, but her name is written 
upon her forehead. And this idea of naming uh, or marking something is a sign of ownership. That's why Adam in the garden, he named all of the animals. God gave him the right to rule over this earth. That, that's what his purpose was, was to rule and reign over the earth. So he's given the right to name uh, the animals. And but this, she also has this mark, this name is imprinted on her, similar to the way that the 144,000 Jewish witnesses will be marked by the Holy Spirit, sealed by the Holy Spirit. We saw Revelation 7 and verse 3. Furthermore, the people of the earth during this period of time will be required to take the mark of the beast, showing their ownership, their worship of the Satan and the Antichrist so that they can't uh, do anything other than buy or they, they will only be able to buy and sell if they have this mark on their right hand or on their forehead, similar to the, the naming of the harlot here, showing that they are uh, worshiping the Antichrist. Well, this woman, this harlot is owned in a way. She is owned and controlled by the beast, by Satan in this satan coming satanic kingdom. Now, what is the name? That, that is the question that we at least want to answer because there, there actually is a discrepancy in our English translations. There's, uh, it's not really even, it's not a textual variant. A textual variant is something that happens when uh, various manuscripts have different words in them. These are, this is a discrepancy in the way that the translators decided to translate the actual words on the page. There's no doubt about what it says in the Greek manuscripts here. It's just a, a difference in the way that it's translated. And the King James and the New King James will include the word mystery in the title. So if you have a King James, it will have Mystery, Babylon the Great, all in capitals and bold letters as if mystery is part of her name. And uh, the NASB does not. If you have that, you can notice it says, and on her name, on her forehead, a name was written, comma, a mystery, comma, Babylon the Great. So it is a mystery, and the truth is being revealed, and the name is Babylon the Great, whereas in the King James, Mystery Babylon is included as part of the title. Now, there is, there's a real problem with that. Uh, in Greek, adjectives and the words that they are describing need to agree in gender and in uh, number and these kinds of issues. Mystery is a neuter term, which is there are three genders in language. There's only two for people. 
male and female. It's different in language. There's a neuter, a male and a female. Mystery is a neuter term. Babylon is a female term. Therefore, mystery, grammatically speaking, cannot be describing Babylon. It doesn't work. Mystery is neuter. Babylon is gender. And if it is part of the title, it has to be, the the mystery has to be fulfilling the part of speech of an adjective. So sometimes we got to get into the details. Sorry. (laughs) Uh, But that cannot be in this case because they do not agree in gender. So mystery is not part of the title. It is just, it is acting as a noun in this case, not an adjective. And it is saying that there is a name on her forehead. It's a mystery. The name is Babylon the Great. Now, you didn't know this before. In fact, you didn't know this entire thing is a mystery because you didn't know about the harlot riding on the beast. And now I'm telling you, describing to you, giving you the answer to the mystery. The revelation is that the name of this great city that is to come in the future is Babylon the Great. And oh, by the way, she is the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And we'll get more into that uh, as we move into it next week. Mystery and Babylon are not the same gender. You know what is the same gender in this? Babylon and great. So the name of the city is Babylon, and it is a great city. Great acting as an adjective. They're both feminine in this place. In the passage, Babylon and great uh, are both feminine, so they go together. Mystery does not. Mystery is not part of the title. Mystery Babylon simply leads to speculation. That's all there, that's really all there is to it. When you see mystery as uh, being part of the title, interpreters take that as license to, oh, all right, gloves are off, I I can make this mean essentially whatever I want it to mean because after all, it's it's a mystery, mystery Babylon. So I can make it mean something other than what the plain words on the page say. It automatically leads to speculation and and the speculation across all spectrums of Christianity and Christian interpreters is that Babylon equals Rome. And when I say all, I mean all including dispensationalists who insert Rome in the place of Babylon, uh, they're not the only ones. Everybody, historicists, believe that. That's this uh, book from Steve Gregg. If you buy a book on Revelation, it's a great one to get. Steve Gregg, Four Views of Revelation. Uh, uh, Famous historicist uh, Wesley when he, I'm pretty sure it was Wesley, when he, uh, yes, Wesley, in his comments on Revelation 17 and verse 5, it begins with, uh, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And then he launches into a discussion of why the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth is Rome. 
didn't even talk about Babylon, didn't mention uh, Babylon the Great, just skipped over that part and moved right into, oh, the abomination of all, that's Rome, we all know that, that's uh, false religion, it's got to be, doesn't even talk about the term Babylon the Great. So they, so historicists in large part believe that, that this is describing Roman Catholicism. It's so clear, it's so clear that this passage is uh, describing Roman Catholicism that we don't even need to address the phrase Babylon the Great. That's a very dangerous way to interpret the Bible, to say the least. Uh, preterists, uh, some believe that the that the harlot is Rome. Some others believe that it was actually Jerusalem. Uh, from a spiritualist, here's a uh, Steve Gregg, also from his commentary, the spirit and the spiritualist viewpoint. Quote: There can be little or no doubt that the Babylon of this section is Rome, and Rome itself is a symbol of the great world city of lust and seduction. Really? What? There's nothing here that is just that makes it point blank. This is Rome and Roman Catholicism. Uh, unfortunately, Charles Ryrie, John Wolverd, in fact, actually most dispensationalists, the majority of dispensationalists are going to say that this is describing Rome, using some kind of code language to do it. This is uh, in particular Calvary Chapel, uh, dispensationalist teachers, Amir Safardi, I'm sure everybody knows Amir, knows and loves Amir. He's great. He is very big into mystery Babylon. And then we can just set off on a trail of speculation and see, uh, see it everywhere. Uh, uh, Jack Hibbs is another one uh, who teaches this idea of mystery Babylon. And so it's described, notice again, we're, I, I know we're going long, but I just can't resist that this uh, city, <laughs> Babylon the Great, is the mother of harlots, that this city is giving birth to harlotry, to false religion in the abominations of the earth. So did false religion and abomination and, and all of these kinds of things begin with Catholicism began with the Roman church. Did the Roman Catholicism give birth to false religion? No, absolutely not. 100% no, false religion did not begin with Roman Catholicism. That is, and this is coming from a former Roman Catholic. Uh, Roman Catholicism is not the beginning of false religion. It just so happened that during the Reformation period, Roman Catholicism happened to be in the Western world, even kind of the, the, the leading example of false religion at the time that those people were writing. Now talk about newspaper exegesis. That is it. In a nutshell, you look around and you see in your own world and sphere of influence what this looks like now and say, oh, that's what the Bible means. That is, that is bad and wrong to do and violating very clearly the words 
on the page. This city is the mother of harlots. It is the, the beginning point, just like Eve is the mother of humanity. She gave birth to the first person. This city gave birth to the beginning of God-hating false religion. That is what's encapsulated in that title, and that is not Rome. The the words on the page and, and even common sense show us that Babylon is not Rome. It cannot be Rome, as a matter of fact. Uh, And there is no mystery. It is not mystery Babylon. That can be shown with 100% assurity that it is not mystery Babylon based on the grammar of the sentence. And simple reading shows us that, well, Rome and Roman Catholicism cannot be what is being described here because it is not the mother of harlots. Babylon is the mother of of harlots, and the, the beginning point of false religion, and we'll see that next time. We'll look at it in more detail in Genesis chapter 11. Another thing that they will point to in this speculation, we'll just get this right out of the way uh, to begin with as well, uh, Babylon equals Rome. After all, she's sitting on seven hills, right? It says that uh, later in our in our passage, uh, where is it? Here is the mind which has wisdom. It says the seven heads are uh, seven hills on which the woman sits. Right there in Revelation seventeen nine. Right, it says the woman is sitting on the seven hills. Well, Rome is on seven hills, and it it has seven hills that make up this city. Oh, but wait, it doesn't say hills. Cincinnati has seven hills also, Cincinnati, Ohio. There's even an area called Seven Hills in Cincinnati, Ohio. Maybe that's, maybe that's why everybody's in Ohio this week. <laughs> but wait, it doesn't even say seven hills. It says seven mountains. Verse 9, here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits, and we don't have to go, oh, maybe it's Denver. There's a lot of big mountains out in Denver, out in Colorado. No. Verse 10, the seven mountains, and they are seven kings. We don't have to use our imaginations to come up with a city that equals seven hills or seven mountains and Oh, it's got to have a wilderness. It's got to have a lot of water. No, all of that is foolishness. The mystery is revealed to us in the text. The woman is a city, Revelation 7, 18. The seven hills aren't hills, they're mountains. And the seven mountains equals seven kings, Revelation 7, 9, and 10. The seven mountains are kings. Yes, Roman Catholicism is a mother-child religion. We'll get more into that next time. But the fact of the matter is that the mystery is a revealing of a previous, previously unknown truth. So the takeaway for today, 
this, uh, John is being introduced to this harlot riding on a beast. The harlot is representative of a city then that the, and she is being carried along by a satanically driven kingdom and the name of that city is Babylon. Now, what in the world does this have to do with me as a Christian? Well, it ought to give us, as a believer, we ought to be reminded that God is in control of this world, so much so that he can give us the very details of the city that is going to be in existence in the end times, and that it's how it's going to come to its demise. And that ought to give us a lot of uh, courage, actually, and faith in God and in his word, and encourage us in our daily walk with him. If he can handle this problem, if he can handle the deep state and and the, the fact that Satan is controlling the nations of the world, he can eradicate that. Oh, he can take care of my problems in my life. He, he has saved me. He can comfort me when I have problems. He can heal me when I have uh, health issues. And even if he doesn't directly heal me, he certainly has healed me spiritually and given me eternal life. If he's the God who can do these things, he can certainly do the other for us in our personal lives. And let's go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the book of Revelation that reveals to us so much about the future uh, and so that we can have confidence in the world in which we are living today. I thank you for the salvation that we have in Christ. I thank you for the Holy Spirit who indwells us. And I just pray that we would be uh, encouraged by your word, encouraged by the fact that you are going to eradicate evil from this world and help us to uh, long for those, things, for those events to take place today so that we can live for you today in a way that is pleasing to you, looking forward to the fact that you will one day rule and reign over this earth. We thank you for that, and we thank you for the salvation that we have in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.